welcome everyone to this uh, Agora talk. I'm really super excited to have tonight Marianne Mugadam and she will of course show us work and for this talk we have as well the wonderful Elizabeth as curator and moderator. I wish you uh, really a good time and have a good talk and uh, well I hand over to you now Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mimi, for the kind introduction. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm so glad that you could join us today. I'm really excited to welcome Marjan Mokhadam, who will be sharing a presentation about her work. Marjan is an award-winning digital artist and animator who primarily works in computer graphics and digital 3D. She lives and works in Brooklyn, where she is a tenured full professor of CG animation and mixed reality at Long Island University. Marjan is well known for her original style of 3D CG figuration and animation that has been central to her practice since the 80s. Her work merges the ideals of sculpture and animation, resulting in a unique style of figuration that she defines as chronometric sculpture. Throughout her practice, Marjan explores digital embodiment for curated art exhibitions and commissions, as well as interventions. Marjan's interventions include her influential art hacks. Art Hacks is an ongoing series that have been exhibited on Instagram since 2016 as a means of redefining form for digital art. Throughout Art Hacks, Marjan actively engages in a thought-provoking and critical discourse, seeking to democratize curation and exhibition spaces by visually hacking digital bodies into found footage of art fairs, galleries, and museums. Her Art Hacks include the recurring and now viral digital embodiment of Glitch Goddess, who has amassed over 18 million views through both Marjan's social media and other top net art channels. Marjan has a prolific exhibition history that spans four decades. In 1996, she was the featured artist for the launch of the first ever commercial internet art gallery in New York, sponsored by Prodigy Inc. Since then, she has notably exhibited at the Smithsonian and has been an official selection of the SIGGRAPH Computer Animation Festival four times. Her achievements include being featured in the Forbes Top AR Apps, Installations and Activations list in 2019 for her art hacks. In 2019, Marjan was also an official AR Adobe Artist in Residence for Project Aero. More recently, she was featured in the 2021 BBC Click documentary, When Art Goes Digital. She has sold her crypto art to top NFT collections on SuperRare, and her other works are held in private and institutional collections. Marjan has an impressive calendar of events for 2021, including a solo exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Digital Art in June. Titled The Digital Embodiments and Interventions of Marjan Mokadam, the exhibition will span multiple decades of her digital art practice. This year, Marjan is also completing a public art commission for a digital sculpture trail at Hillsborough Castle Forest Park in Northern Ireland. The trail will include both a physical sculpture and a permanent AR piece by Marjan. Her art hack of Art Basel 2020, Taking the Knee, will be displayed in an upcoming exhibition at OO Landis Culture GmbH, which will trace the history of NFTs in art. This will be the world's first major museum exhibition exploring this subject and will take place both in the museum and online in crypto voxels. Marjan's talk with Agora Digital Art today is entitled Embodiment and Interventions in Digital Art. This talk will focus on Marjan's digital embodiments, animations, and interventions, spanning her well-established career from the 80s until the present. Marjan will share with us how her practice offers contemporary insight into expanding art history in authentic 
and persistent ways. I'm now going to hand over to you, Marjan, and we'll follow her presentation with a Q&A. Wow, what, a, what an introduction. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for that uh, amazing introduction. And thank you so much, Mimi, for the introduction as well, and also for hosting these and for Agora and everything else. I, I really believe in your mission and everything Agora is about and, and, and support it very strongly. And I would like to thank everybody who's here today for this talk and all the people who will be catching it later on YouTube, et cetera. So I'm, I'm actually, as Elizabeth brought up, my art practice goes back to the 1980s. I'm going to actually have a video that shows some collected works throughout the years. Let me just set up my desktop sharing. And I have a video with the selected works from the 1980s till now, which shows the evolution of my embodiment work and also the recent interventions. I always say my first exhibited the computer art piece was done on a Commodore 64, and here it is. I exhibited this in 1984, and then I moved to the Amiga, and, and I always say when computer art was mostly men doing color-cycled polygons, I was opening vaginas inside of heads. Then in the 1990s, I was working with computer-generated fractals. This is a German TV CDF spot on me, and this was my uh, box, which was the head immersive early virtual reality installation in 1995. And I was cutting and chopping up and reanimating the fractals, and that's an infinity cube inside, and exhibiting it as various different head immersive installations, like the one you see here. I was also exhibiting them as projections and as desolid canvases, like a painting with a projected gold frame. That's actually me with the blonde hair back then, and that's an example. I, I would call these landscape chaoscape because it was a type of a landscape that consisted of computer-generated fractals and what was termed as chaos theory back then. I also did these pieces as prints. I also did early online work on the Mosaic internet. And I think, I think you're actually going to see a clip of my early Mosaic era, early internet. Well, this is before Netscape, by the way, uh, website and work. And I would also do this work. I would project the same animations I would create on myself while contemplating chaos. I did this performance piece in a bunch of different galleries in the 1990s in Soho. These are some stills from those performances. And then I made a 3D avatar of myself in, uh, at the same time and projected the animations onto it. This is actually the dot-com gallery site on the old web today. You can actually see this. It's archived. And I was the featured artist. And this is the, the 3D hyperreal version I created. As you can see, it's the same 3D avatar with the animations. And this was actually an entire website with you know many pages. And I also had it mirrored on my side. And then, of course, more bald humanoids with procedural and fractal Dermal pigmentation, as I called it, which brought about the adoration theories, which were post-humanist works that paired the both humanoids with technological extensions of the body. This was actually the last piece from that collection that I did, which was in Sigraph 2003 and the CGO 330 Years of Computer Art International Traveling Exhibition that toured galleries and museums from 2003. 2005. And then starting in 2008, I started to work with uh, motion capture and it was early mocap technology and I was working with improvised dance. This is Gab, which was in SIGGRAPH 2009 and DVD review best stuff that year. And uh, this was like a pretty groundbreaking work at that time. I was creating these abstract and CG figures made up of modulated parts that were reflecting on interoception, breath cycles, heartbeats, uh, energy cycles, and SCAB was about post-traumatic stress syndrome. So it, it was really exploring digital embodiment and how do I show these psychological states and these various other states of being. 
And uh, this basically birthed the pipeline that I then used for the next four to five years in creating my Aug Revolutions collection, which consisted of you know, large format prints, animated paintings, sculpture, VR, and also cabotier painting in which the audience wrote the figures with gestural control of explosions. The, this collection explored my experiences of living through the 1978-79 Islamic Revolution in Iran on the one hand, and then the whole idea of revolutions politically and also artistically and mimetically. And there was within this body of work also uh, some feminist pieces as well. That's uh, shooting Venus and uh, Venus and Svarin based loosely based on contemporary German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk's uh, Svarin trilogy. And uh, yes, if you look up at the VR, there I am. Then in 2016, I had been doing these sort of uh, mixed reality projects on Instagram, and I decided to do the art hacks by hacking the same digital embodiment dialogue and my critical discourse into found and shot exhibition footage and also working with what was happening at that time but that was the 2016 art basel and when the jeffman's puppy smashed and it was like a metaphor for the shattering of america with the 2016 uh, donald trump election and that was the color cycle pussy fights back at art basel this was my non-binary new glitch at uh Gagosian, the landmark survey of uh, 100 years uh, of art and, and for me, it was about intervening in that show because there was no digital nude and there was also no non-binary. This is my glitched Odalis, which is at the Whitney, which was the traditional Eastern harem girl. And some of the hacks were also critiquing the over-financialization and commodification of art, contemporary art, through the art fair system. This was my beset Mary Boone and Glasses and Waxish, which then went viral with millions of views on the Nowness post. Nowness now has this as part of its Pioneers of Media Art Collection, uh, cultural programming collection. This was my hack with Sarah Lucas, who's an artist I admire and respect. And I very much sort of felt that my approach to embodiment uh, was something I wanted to engage her work in as a dialogue. Of course, political events such as the Kavanaugh hearings were happening during freeze. And of course, they made it into my art hack. This was like an early glitch goddess. And this is the viral glitch goddess, the hack. And Glitch Goddess intervenes on the art historic idea that a woman is a singular form by using digital plasticity to go from a slender, heavy, pregnant, young, old glitch and abstract and stylized. This was Freeze uh, 2019, New York, Freeze 2019. And at some point, Glitch Goddess, I started to hack her into the fashion runway. This was the Versace show with J-Lo. And American Purple was born during the 2020 election cycle. And it was really uh, about what was happening in the country at that time. And there were other chronometric sculpture pieces that I would do outside of these interventions at that time. So there's a whole bunch of them. And these were like two of the ones that I picked. She's glitching the this glitch that I use in the turquoise niches, and she, of course, glitches the architectural niche behind her, which is another variation of it. These are all accompanied by music and sound, of course, which I have uh, silent right now so I can talk on top of it. I had originally done AR for uh, the Old Museum Digital Sculpture Show in 2017. So in, in 2018, I was commissioned to do autonomous for the Smithsonian Museum and the second version, which was foreign in the National Cathedral. Autonomous was the individual's pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and Sparin was our collective pursuit of the same. I then did a whole bunch of exhibitions with Print Trigger at AR. This, this glitch goddess, Print Trigger, the audio has uh, is a voiceover of women talking about their bodies and inequality based on all the comments that were made on the viral post. So there is this sort of like net aggregated quality, and there were sculpture pieces as well, with 
And uh, you're seeing some of the exhibited works that yeah, was from Autonomous. And then I did the artist in residency with Arrow. And then my work was picked for a top 2019 AR activations. This was last fall, the exhibition I did at Art of Our Century Gallery in New York with French Rude AR and video art objects. And this was, of course, my hack of the Mark Link head. Mark and I are friends. And I've often joked, you should let me mess with your hands and these heads. Seems like any time. So this resulted in me creating Tomoma, the other MoMA, which has all of my work on the walls and Mark Link's head, which I reanimated. Which brings us to crypto. Last summer, I entered uh, crypto art world with an adaptation of my Taking the Knee Art Basel 2020 hack, or Taking the Knee in Solidarity with GAN generated painting. And I basically redid that hack with all GAN generated components in the background instead of the art that was on the Art Basel slide. This is my Lordess, and she's actually part of a suite. So this was the first one. I redid my Bessé also with a 3D Mary Boom Gallery and GAN collage paintings that I did. Those aren't actually Stephanie Hines. Those are my GAN collage paintings in the background. And then there was Crypto Art Rides the Bull outside the New York Stock Exchange last February. These works have all sold. Several of them have already sold into the uh, secondary market as well. And this is my Lord S with a red and teal voxelite uh, GAN generated painting. And some of this work was exhibited, of course, crypto art was exhibited in F, F Wall Street exhibition at Stella Bell's Museum and Crypto Voxels. And I did a voxel sculpture building as well, in addition to the animation on top. That was the opening. And I also exhibited that in uh, Graffiti Queens, the largest NFT art exhibition in Decentraland, which was last March. And it was also recently exhibited at the 4156 collection in Crypto Voxels. And I did the Clubhouse talk for that as well. And that's my best nine of 2020 with three crypto art pieces, three art hacks, and three exhibited pieces. And that's it in terms of highlights from several decades of work. Thank you so much for sharing that insight into your amazing career and practice. So I'd like to start this conversation by asking, how did what you now define as chronometric sculpture begin and evolve? And what do the possibilities of this style of figuration mean to you, both creatively and art historically? I think that any conversation about my sculpture has to begin with the work that informs my practice. I'm very much informed by art history on the one hand, but I'm also informed by cinema history and animation history, computer art history, media history, and of course CG and CG history. So all of these ideas are informing my art practice, not just art history. And something that has always impressed me, like when I look at my favorite works of art, I think that there are works that, as embodiment, that very much conveyed ideas of the profound and the sublime on the one hand. And then there were other works in terms of embodiment that conveyed psychological states or the unconscious or an aspect of what I call interiority or, for that matter, interoception. And then there were works, especially in terms of 20th century modernism and postmodernism, that conveyed states of being. And to me, like the, those states of being were such complex ideas. And, and for me, being always is the place I go to more so than identity, because being encompasses so many different ideas. And there's also an aspect of the non-physical and metaphysical to it as well. So these were, these were my greatest inspirations. And this is what I was trying to do with digital embodiment. And when you know, people joke about crypto art as little bald humanoids with wild textures and simulation, I've been doing that since the 90s. So like, where does that work? How do you evolve it? And so uh, one of the things that I did by showing the history was to show that evolution. It was always very important for me to do work 
that had never been seen before. I've always had a drive to do that on the one hand. And it wasn't enough for me to just innovate technology. I had to innovate aesthetics. I had to innovate conceptually and philosophically and also redefine form. And so with all of these my ideas, as my work evolved, I mean, literally with SCAB, you can see that I'm really starting to play with what the body looks like as it's moving. And then at some point, it just became push the body as far as I can while conveying all of these different ideas. And if you look at, for instance, my non-binary nude bitch, she's all about translocation within the same body, within the periphery of the body. So her body steps outside of the footprint, and it's like a dialogue of translocation within the body. Whereas with Glitch Dodelis, she's almost like the exact opposite. She retains her footprint throughout, but then it's her body that forms both clothing and nudity. I don't know if you notice or not, but there are times when her body becomes shards of fabric and cloth covering her, and then they disappear and she becomes nude, and her sexual body parts are then translocating within the actual form itself. And she was the harem girl responding back over a century later in the 21st century to digital plasticity, and in a way, decolonizing the museum. And then with Glitch Goddess, she was an art historic intervention in terms of the idea that a woman is a singular form. So her body is constantly resisting the singular form. When I did the Of Revolutions collection, many of those aggregated figures, which were made up of platonic scholars, were showing our transference from the physical to the digital. And in fact, in fact that entire collection is when you know, smartphones became ubiquitous globally. And so the idea was that we were becoming these packets of quantified machine parts that aggregated together became our digital identities. And that's why those figures were like that. And they were modulated too, in terms of showing some type of an interoception, as if there was some kind of an internal organ or mechanism that was driving the modulation, like breath or heartbeat. But then with the plasticity, what happened is I felt that we're, we're fully digital now. But the question is, what are we as beings in the digital? And that's why the forms are so expansive, because all of us are so many different things simultaneously. It's almost like the way we are in the digital refuses any static state. It's a constant experience of being in flux. And so for my chronometric sculpture, I use a combination of, of course, 3D CG modeling and animation. I use a lot of procedural animation. I use mocap. I use post-to-pose animation. And I've built like a custom pipeline and toolkit to be able to do this stuff. And, and as you've you shared during your presentation, your art hacks are frequently created and shared to Instagram while art fairs and gallery shows are live. How do you select which events and venues to hack? And within that limited time frame, where do you first turn to seek inspiration and how do you transform that into a concept? I think with the art hacks, my, with the art fairs, my intention was to be the major art fair. So for the last, since 2016, I've done the, all the major art, art fairs. And the idea is I literally have three days. And then and what I do is determine but what kind of footage I can find online or shoot. Also, what is happening at the same time. There are events that happen uh, during these art fairs that clearly influence the, what I call the aggregated human imagination on the internet, medically, and they work their way in. So for me, it's very improvisational. I never know what to do. And I literally work around the clock for three days until they're done and I post them. So I'd say it's a creative stream of consciousness 
collaboration with the mixed media content and my art practice and, and whatever comes out will be what the hack is. And on that same topic, what prompted you to exhibit your interventions on Instagram? What is, what is it about Instagram as a space that lends itself well to your art hacks and their aims? I think sometime around 2015, I made a joke that if I do these like big exhibitions and art centers and this and that, and it takes so much work. And in the end, the only thing that matters is the documentation on social media. And it was it was a joke, but it was also true. There was a part of me saying that said, why not just do the work on social media to begin with, instead of having to go through the entire physical exhibition process just to produce the exhibition documentation. So that joke contained within, I think, a lot of essential ideas in terms of everything that's changed. And I live in New York City, but even in 2015, the majority of the art that I was looking at was not physically in person in galleries and museums, even though I'm within walking distance of lots of galleries. But the majority of the work that I was looking at was on Instagram. And Instagram had very much created a new cultural experience for viewing art that did not involve physical attendance of galleries. And it was very different than Tumblr, in my opinion. It was very different than previous iterations of social media. And I think that what really blew me away in terms of the comments and DMs that I get from everyone is that there was, I discovered there's a very sophisticated art viewing audience on Instagram, especially in those years, I'd say between 2016 to probably 2018. Those were the peak years where there was this incredibly sophisticated audience that was very interested in art. And there was this explosion of uh, creativity that was happening on Instagram. And I wanted to, to also ask, how do you see crypto art and NFTs impacting digital art? This is, uh, it's interesting because I feel as if I've lived through the whole good bit of the history of digital art. And, and at no point has digital art received uh, the acceptance or its uh, inclusion within the contemporary art world that other media like video art and performance art have enjoyed in the last four decades. On some levels, digital art has always been on the periphery, never taken seriously, and very much underrepresented in terms of the contemporary art system. And so for me, when I see people at Sotheby's, I don't complain about this work. I go, my God, this is a miracle that this is even happening. So crypto art is finally allowing artists working with digital tools and creating digital art that is part of applied arts, yes, but there's an awful lot of fine arts digital work as well in the crypto art and everything else in between. For the first time, digital artists are able to have their work evaluated, sold, collected, and resold. This exactly the same as painters, sculptors, etc. And oftentimes enough, when it, I've done a lot of materialization and fabrication of digital art over the course of the years, that's the only way you could exhibit and sell them. But for me, the native form has always been the digital file. And for me, an animation is not the video monitor in a gallery, it's the animation. So I'm particularly excited about it because it's, this is the native form for what I've been doing for most of my life. And, and when you consider how much digital art has been part of the greater cultural dialogue now for decades without any proper representation or evaluation within the contemporary art market, you realize that crypto art is finally allowing digital art uh, to be accepted as a valid and legitimate medium for the fine arts and to receive the presentation and inclusion that it deserves within the greater uh, trajectory of art history. And you've titled your, your most recent art hack, Crypto Reinvents Art Outside. And I was wondering, what does reinventing art outside mean to you 
And what has recently inspired you to hack outdoor spaces as well? I always kind of like multiple layers of meaning. I think for me, there was an aspect of outside that was COVID, the amount of time that everybody's spending outside. But there's also an aspect of outside that's a metaphor for outsider art or outside system outside the the orthodoxies of traditional contemporary art. So yes, it's about reinventing art outside of the art system. And when you think about it, when you look at art history, you realize that many of the innovations and disruptions of art history either happen outside the existing conventional art world or on the periphery. So the art world has never historically speaking been an innovator. Usually there's an innovation on the periphery or outside that then becomes something and then the art world adopts it. I literally lived through this in the 1980s where in the East Village where Patty Astor had her fun gallery with the Fat Five Freddy, who's a graffiti artist. And then Keith Haring and David Norowitz and all the new expressionist artists at that time. And a couple of blocks west, what Castelli was showing on West Broadway was a completely different thing. And nobody thought what, what Patty Astor was showing at Fun Gallery was art. Everybody thought, oh, it's just a bunch of young people doing crazy stuff. You look at last this week, or was it last week that Jean-Michel Basquiat's uh, skull from that era sold for uh, $96 million. I seriously doubt if there's any artist Castelli was showing in the 1980s on West Broadway that's going to fetch that amount of money today. So you have to understand that these outside disruptions that happen ultimately end up having a greater influence uh, sometimes than the conventional orthodoxies that dominate the art market. So for me, yes. It's art is reinventing itself outside of the traditional art market and system. And I think it's very important that the, the crypto art writer is a female with a changing body in my style. She's also rainbow colored. One of the things that I love about the crypto art is so many of the artists that I meet are women. They're from Brazil. They're from Singapore. They're from Africa. And I absolutely love that. I have a young Brazilian crypto artist friend. He's, he's able to move himself and his entire family to, as he put it, the better part of town. This is really huge when you think about it. These are artists that would not normally have any access to the art market. And the fact that they're selling their work to collectors to an international uh, collection market is really a miracle when you think about it. But yes, it's a woman. She's glitching the Wall Street Bowl. And she's a rainbow of colors and it's reinventing art outside of the conventional systems. And you're currently in the final stages of putting together your solo exhibition at Nocta. So my final question is, could you share a little bit about this experience? This is a really exciting exhibition. Filippo uh, Lorenzen is curating it and he's uh, done exhaustive research on my art practice. And, and we've been back and forth. He's selected a lot of pieces, some of the pieces that I showed and also other pieces I didn't show today. And so I'm very excited about it. There's going to be three different rooms within the Mokta Museum in Decentraland. One room is going to be embodiments and that includes work from the 1980s to the approximately 2015 some of which you saw today. There's going to be a middle installation room with a 3D CG uh, VR installation. And then there's going to be a room for the interventions and crypto art. And uh, what what is uh, fascinating, of course, is, is to kind of like find ways of getting as much as I can out of the central land. Exhibiting in these metaverses, I don't know how many people realize it's not always easy because of bandwidth issues, ice issues, et cetera. And so anytime you have lots and lots of videos to show, 
it's, it's like a huge challenge. But this is something that we're working very closely with the developers at, in the Central Land, just so that we can we can pull this off because it's, it's going to be quite a technological challenge. As I mentioned earlier, as soon as this is over, I have to go back to working on the installation room. And uh, so I'm very excited about the show and I hope everybody can join us there. You can set up a, an account for free on Decentraland, but just be aware that you might need a Ethereum wallet. Thank you so much um, for that really interesting Q&A. And I'd now really like to welcome questions from the audience as well. So please either ask your questions in the chat or feel free to join our conversation as well. So I can see there are some questions in the chat that I'll read aloud. So the first question is, crypto art aspires to collapse the foundation of the establishments, such as galleries and museums. Do you think NFT art also blends the hierarchy between established and emerging artists? Yes, it absolutely does. When you, when you look at, like I said, I'm, I'm talking to artists who are 22 years old from Singapore and they dropped out of college and they've never exhibited their work. They've never worked as a CG artist. They're complete unprofessionals and they're entering the space and they're selling their art. But something I didn't get to mention during an overview of my art practice was that in addition to creating and exhibiting all of these fine arts work over the course of the decades, I, I've been, I was a production artist starting in the 1980s, working at different studios, doing you know, commercial animation and commercial CG. And at one point in the, in the 90s, I had my own studio with two partners, Digital Media Arts Inc. on Fifth Avenue and 18th Street. And I worked on top accounts from NBC Primetime Animation to you know, multimedia presentations for Ernst & Young and other Fortune 500 companies back then. Like I'm someone who's had this very long career as a professional artist working on quote unquote, the hot shit accounts of the time and also doing exhibitions. And I'm like hanging out with someone who's 22 years old from Singapore who dropped out of college and can't believe somebody actually just bought their art. So I love that aspect of crypto art, that it allows a mixing of the high and low. And if you think about the, the real innovation of the digital and the internet has been precisely this this co-mingling of the high and low, this, this dissolution of the hierarchies, mimetically speaking first, and now we're seeing the, the repercussions of that economically, sociopolitically, and culturally as well. Absolutely. That's an important aspect of crypto art. But something that I wanted to also clarify is that to me, there's the term NFTs, which is really the technology. And increasingly people, especially the non-crypto artists entering the space now, I'm noticing, are preferring the term NFT art because they, they think that crypto has this derogatory meaning. But I actually like crypto art because the difference is this. NFTs are a technology, but crypto art is a movement and there's a difference in these. And the idea that crypto is derogatory, it's the intermingling of the high and the low aspect that, that is embodied, if you may, in, in that umbrella term, crypto. I still use the term crypto art because of the disruption that it is, and not so much as NFTs, which can be anything from NBA Top Shots to, I just saw Kate Moss had a video of her sleeping with revealing a nipple that just sold for, I don't know how much. So you have celebrity celebrity content selling now as NFTs. And so crypto art is, is a very different thing to me than just the umbrella term NFTs. And there's another question here for you. What impact did living through the Iranian revolution have on your work? And what should your adoring viewers like me take away from this subject matter 
incorporated into your work? I like I said, I've done a lot of work with that, and and a lot of the embedded writing in those pieces uh, really discusses a lot of my experiences. But I always say that I arrived in New York in 1979, pretty traumatized, and for me, I I went to New York Tech where I was a student and, and worked on back supercomputers to do computer graphics and. Two things happened. The, the, the first thing was I, I loved the possibility of futurism inherent in computer technology and making art with that technology. And maybe for me, it was the reaction against the regressive forces that had taken over my country of origin and pretty much ended my life as I knew it back. But so sometimes I think if the revolution had happened, I may not have chosen to work with computer technology because I pushed into the future because I was trying to get away from the past. And another interesting thing that happened was that suddenly I realized that I was very good at it. And most of my friends who were other artists were like, oh, I can't handle computers. And they were like terrified of computers. And I was like, but this is easy. And I was very good at it. And I think like most young people, it's like the second you discover you're good at something, you're like, oh, I want to do this more. So it was a combination. But the revolution has affected my work throughout. And maybe... Andre's question, the best way I can answer it is that sometimes I think that when you've experienced a lot of catastrophic loss, and I'm the last member of my family alive today, so all my siblings have passed away, both my parents have passed away, and many things that I've loved have passed away, and I carry tremendous amount of loss and grief, is I think when you live this way, you, you develop an appreciation for the profound. And you develop an appreciation for the sublime. You, d- you develop an appreciation for meaning and understanding and depth. The reason I'm drawn to that is it's because it's the thing that allows everything to make sense. And sometimes I think Viktor Frankl was right. Understanding is more important than happiness. I feel wholeness in the depths of the profound and the sublime and looking for these layers of meaning. And a lot of times, uh, many critics are now describing the problem of technology with culture is that, that it flattens culture. It creates a superficial layer and eliminates all the depth underneath. And so the revolution for me and its re- repercussions throughout my life has been, I need the depth. I need the profound. I need the sublime. And I'm constantly drawn to it. And if there's something I try to do with my work, even if I'm doing a funny mimetic thing, is to still make sure the humanity, the depth, the meaning, and also the unquantifiable and the unknowable is still present in that. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any further questions for Marjan? Feel free also to join our conversation as well, if you'd like. The social media plays such an important role now in the kind of promotion of an artwork. And you were talking just a few minutes ago about the flatness of the meanings. Are you not afraid that the first impression is candy for the eye and then the meaning gets lost because we all scroll to the next animation on our screen? But how do you think that you engage in, in a different manner with, with your audience? You know, that's a very, very good question because that's changing the nature of art. I think that if you're doing a piece for a white cube gallery where there's a space and, and you can devote a lot of time and attention to it, you craft that piece and you create that piece in a very different way. I think when you look at a lot of pieces that perform well in galleries and museums and you transpose them into Instagram feed, they get lost. They get completely lost, like you said, because they were never really designed 
to perform for the attention economy. On the, on the one hand, the attention economy does promote the, the basis instincts of humans in a way that is, is not so great. But I still feel as if the, the real gift of artists to each era is that they find ways of creating artwork with the skimmers of their time with whatever they're given or whatever they're handed. When that was murals on a wall during the Renaissance, that's what they worked with. Then when the Venetians came up with canvas, that's what they worked with, and so on and so forth. And I think in the 20th century, with the advent of photography, film, video, et cetera, once again, art changed. So I think each generation has to look to their time, to their moment, to figure out what is the art of this moment. And so... One of the things that I do is I'm aware of the attention economy and the eyeball economy, as it's called, on social media. So I am consciously working with that setup. And so naturally, I work with visual content that is compelling. I think Gibson was very prescient with the Neuromancer trilogy in general. But I think after Neuromancer, you know, he came up in his other books with the concept of cool hunting. But I don't think he realized how prescient that would be because cool hunting is what all of us are doing at any given time when we're looking through our social media feeds. We're all cool hunters now. So that that existing instinct of humans to find novelty and the unusual is now driving, some argue, the, the capitalist consumerism, which I also agree with. And to a large extent, it's also driving the eyeball economy of the internet. But I think artists that are doing and creating work for the net and to a large extent crypto art have to understand that visual ecosystem the same way a painter has to understand the white cube ecosystem of a gallery. So you have to approach the net and crypto art with some understanding of what works with this premise and deliver works for this premise. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask, finally, what's next? Where do you see your interventions going from now forward? I think I, I was just mentioning before the talk that my last art hack outside the shed where Freeze New York was held, I was able to upload it to all social media, but not Facebook. No matter what I did, Facebook would not upload the video. And I filed a report and they said it violated community standards. And I'm like, there's no nudity in it. There's no violence in it. I have no idea why this would violate community standards. And then I realized it might be a copyright issue because of the shed, even though I had shot the footage. But that also made me realize that if this is a new type of censorship in terms of copyright enforcement, it might seriously restrict my ability to continue to do art hacks into the future, especially if they involve a symbolic architecture or buildings or things of that kind. So right now, I think the art hack future is up in the air, depending on what happens with the social media and how they want to enforce mixed reality hacks and whether they allow it or not. But I think that for me right now, I, I have a lot of inquiries from you know, people wanting to collect the art hacks. And so the challenge for me is how to create a copyright cleared version to uh, sell, because I know other crypto writers don't do that, but I actually abide by copyright laws, generally speaking, when I sell work. I think I allow transgression and appropriation in my art when it's not for sale with the art hacks. That's part of my dialogue. But I think if I'm going to create a version for sale, it has to be copyright cleared. So I'm looking at various different innovative ways of redoing the hacks in a way that retains the original hack. 
but are also copyright clear. I guess the next thing that I really like to do is to uh, advance my chromatic sculpture technique, you know, even further with some newer tools and newer technologies that I've been testing with and hoping to be able to incorporate into my pipeline and do new animations with. So those are all the different directions I'm going in right now. Lots of crypto art. And of course, finishing the commission for Hillsborough Park in the UK. And just one other quick thing I wanted to mention is I'm working on a very interesting project, which is the story of my life commissioned by the Helium app. And it's an AR, AR story, an AR poem with the sort of profound take on it, if you may. So I'm very excited uh, by this project because the interactivity is going to be driven by biofeedback uh, mechanisms and breath cycles, brain waves, and other things. It's a really interesting way of working with XR and extending it into the biological function of a person and allowing them to interact with the components, with their breath, with their heartbeat, and also advance the story uh, with their brain waves. So it's a very exciting project, and it's with the Storios division of Helium, and I'm literally in the middle of it, just finished chapter three and onto chapter four <laughs> this month. That'll be one of the stories that's available through the Helium app. Yeah. The Helium app is a bunch of, is a group of different VR experiences and also AR experiences, all, all of which have a healing component. Storia Us was a division they created specifically for healing stories, and they wanted people with trauma to share their stories of how they transcended trauma. So, which is a very interesting concept. So it's not just every kind of a story. The idea is it's a healing story. How, how did I get through these difficult things in my life? And what was my uh, take on it? So these are going to be a combination of VR experiences and AR experiences. The one that I'm doing is an AR experience, which you can literally unfold sitting in a chair on your tabletop or unfolded life-size and wander through it. Oh, sounds really, really interesting. And I hope to see it sometime soon. How many more chapters do you have to do? It's about seven chapters. So there's four more. I'm working with Alyssa Stahl. She's wonderful. She's the programmer. And I usually upload my Unity scenes to Alyssa. And then Alyssa has to make it work with all the biofeedback thing. We go back and forth with each other. And, and things like this are always challenging because I'm delivering a lot of visual content. And I'm trying to create really interesting ways of interacting with all of these elements. And she has to get it all working on her end with the biofeedback. So it's challenging. Projects this are not very easy to do because everything is an unknown. Everything we do is like has its own set of issues and problems. So they do take a little bit longer development-wise. Yeah. Hi, I just want to say I absolutely adore your work since the very first time I saw you on Facebook and I've been like chasing you on every platform and yeah, you're a great inspiration. Absolutely love it. And yeah, wow. Um, Ariane, maybe what kind of advice would you give to the, the early digital artists who would like to start a, a career in that field? Uh, a word of wisdom, maybe. I, I think it's uh, most young people studying art learn digital art now. So digital art is a much more popular medium now than it was, let's say, even 10 years ago, it wasn't as popular as it is now. And I think with because of NFTs and crypto art, there's going to, on Twitter, they joke that in the future, parents are going to tell their kids not to become doctors and lawyers, but to become digital artists. So how true that will be, I don't know. We'll live through, we'll live in, we'll live through that era and I hope and see. But I think that there are many people working with digital art. And I, and I think that anybody who wants to work with digital art has to understand that the 
that they're literally, in terms of quantity, a much higher number than ever before working with this medium. And that everybody's very much interested in having their work seen in terms of the internet and bought and sold in terms of crypto art. So I think the best way to approach your practice is, and, and I always say this, that if we were to think about what are we, I always say, you know, what am I as a being? And, and I'm, a, I'm a result of 14 plus billion years of cosmological, geological, genetic, and mimetic evolution as a machine learning. It's taken 14 plus billion years for me to be what I am. And it's not just my fingerprint that is truly unique. Everything else about me is truly unique. There's a way to express that artistically. And I think because of all the things I cited, from the attention economy to cool hunting to all the people working with digital art, I think it's all of us have that ability uh, to find a way of creating work that is truly original, truly unique, and truly distinct. And I genuinely believe that because of the nature of the attention economy on the one hand and cool hunting on the other hand, that this type of work will continue to have a much higher value. With postmodernism, we had the cult of personality. As Andy Warhol said, who your friends determines whether you have an art career or not. That's the 20th century art. But in this century, it's your work and how it speaks to the world and how it brings something new to the table. And so I encourage all young artists to first trust themselves and their own talent and ability, number one. And I encourage them to find that unique vision that took 14 plus billion years to bring into existence and to make art with it. But without any doubt, you will be among the goddess of the Thank you. I try. I will be grateful if that happens in my lifetime. Come on, you still have uh, several decades of production and several other chapters. That's so interesting. Uh, they say that in the art world, young men are celebrated. Mm -hmm. But with women, it's, you have to be near death before it's, because it's the persistence and proof that, yes, your work does have intellectual worth and merit. I always say a man's work, there's always an automatic assumption of intellectual worth and merit to what a man does, but never to what a woman does. So if you do art for 50 to 60 years, then people are like, okay, this is, the, but you really have to go through that in terms of the artwork. Like Louise Bourgeois, she didn't really come into prominence until her 70s. And it's sometimes like that. Women are held to a completely different standard, oftentimes than often men. We are here to rebalance. <laughs> That's actually what I really, really love and support about uh, Agora, because I think for women digital artists, it's so much harder because they're not working with painting or traditional media. And so the battle is so much harder for digital artists who are women to receive the recognition they deserve, not just myself, but so many other women who've been doing it as long as I have. And they continue to struggle to have as much recognition sometimes as, uh, as their male counterparts. Yeah. So maybe we, we should nurture a, a better woman-based collector. Is there any feminist group of collectives? It's, I don't have a lot of women collectors. They're, mm -hmm. they're mostly men. So I'm very grateful for that. But I do agree that there could be more women collectors supporting uh, women digital artists. I think that that's something that could use some organization and encouragement because ultimately it's the women supporting women that can help advance women digital artists. And collectors play a huge part. It, it was once argued that what it takes for an artist to make it is three people who believe in them. A collector, 
the curator and a gallerist, a writer. Three. And if you if you line up those three people, it happens. That used to be the line. Is that still true? Yes, maybe. I don't know. I think now the three might be different, but yeah. I think you still need a good writer, you still need a collector, and some type of a curator, definitely. Thank you indeed. I just would like to remind everyone, if you can go on the top of the chat box and please click on the, the Twitter link for Sotheby's and please nominate Marianne and the piece Taking the Knee with the hashtag Natively Digital. Uh, please also, also tag Marianne. <laughs> and so we are really uh, looking forward to see uh, this exhibition in the Central Land soon. And of June course, uh, exactly, June 1st. And of course, for us, the lucky Brits, we are going to visit you in the park. Awesome. Um, I look forward to seeing you and all of your avatars. Thank you so much, Marjan, for being in conversation with us today. It's been really inspiring to learn more about your work and your future projects. And I'm very excited at the prospect of those. And thank you, everyone, for coming and joining us today. Thank you so much for, the, for everyone who came and the awesome questions. And once again, thank you, Liz. Thank you. Take thank care. You so Absolutely. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Mimi. Bye-bye.